Hey there, and welcome to Tom Meets Interesting People. This is the podcast where I interview everyone from voice actors to nuclear engineers to talk about their work, their projects, and their processes. And I've got another feed drop for you, but before I do that, I also have an update. Now, as you may have noticed, I've not really been publishing many episodes, instead doing these feed drops, which I absolutely love because I can step aside and let other people do the work for me. But don't worry. I'm doing this because I'm simply stalling for time. I've already recorded a whole bunch of really, really interesting interviews that I'm mega excited to share with you. And throughout April, I've got a whole bunch more to record. And as such, I'm going to launch new season on Monday, May 22nd. Second? Yeah, second. I wrote in my notes TH. You can see how just... It's not my day today. I'm also going to be going to the podcast show on the 25th of May in London. So if you're going, let me know. Hit me up on Twitter. Uh, I'd love to meet up and make some new connections. And I'm also mega excited for this because this is going to be my very first podcast event. Anyway, enough about me. Today's V-Drop comes from Tim Viegas, who is the host of the Think Inclusive podcast that aims to build connections between families, educators and disability rights advocates to create a shared understanding of inclusive education and what inclusion looks like in the real world. Now, in this episode, you're going to hear a really interesting conversation between Tim and Dr. Ross Green. Now, Dr. Ross Green discusses behaviours in schools, what schools are getting right and wrong about supporting learners with challenging behaviour, and an alternative lens for educators to view behaviour in all learners. So when I'm not doing this podcast, I'm a private tutor. You can check out my website at thomaslanzantutoring.com. And I often find myself working in the SEN space, and I do care a lot about this topic, which is one of the reasons why I picked this episode to put in the feed drop. Part of what I do, I support students to either re-enter mainstream education or perhaps provide provide an alternative provision uh, to their education, kind of more commonly known as homeschooling. So I'm really excited to share this episode with you and let me know what you think. Hey, listeners, I'm Jonathan Cormer. And I'm Mr. Reginald T. Hedgehog. We're the hosts of Dork Tale Storytime, a podcast that brings families together to laugh, learn, and delight in a tale well told. Kids of all ages will enjoy the wacky retellings of classic fairy tales with social and emotional themes and the untold stories about some amazing hidden heroes of history. Grown-ups... If you're geeks at heart, and we know you are, we think the pop culture Easter eggs we pop into every episode will give you a few grins. So check us out where you're listening to this podcast and come visit us at dorktalestorytime.com. Are you wondering how to get your child more included in the classroom at their public school this year? Hi, I'm Beth Liesenfeld, host of the free Parent IEP Advocacy Summit happening September 22nd to 25th. I've gathered 17 IEP experts to help you get a more supportive and effective IEP plan for your child this year. To register, go to www.theieplab.com summit to claim your free ticket. But act fast because it's only free until September 22nd. We'll see you there. MCIE. 
Dr. Ross Green wants schools to rethink how they are supporting learners with challenging behavior. Unfortunately, a lot of schools, despite their emphasis on relationships, are still relying very heavily on consequences and still very focused on the behavior of their students. Now, that might sound like sort of an interesting statement. What would you be focused on if not on the behavior? You'd be focused on the problems that are causing that behavior. And what about the framework that many schools across the country have been using, positive behavioral interventions and supports, and multi-tiered systems of support? You know, the tiers were an attempt to organize the effort. The effort should be aimed at making sure every kid gets what they need. That is also the definition of equity. So, interestingly enough, we should be asking ourselves the question, are the three tiers helping us ensure that every kid gets what they need? But how would it look different if we supported learners with Dr. Green's model? Solving a problem collaboratively involves three steps. First step is called the empathy step. Second step is called the define adult concern step. Third step is called the invitation. My name is Tim Viegas, and you are listening to Think Inclusive, presented by MCIE. This podcast exists to build bridges between families, educators, and disability rights advocates to create a shared understanding of inclusive education and what inclusion looks like in the real world. For this episode, I talk with Dr. Ross Green, author of the books Lost at School and Raising Human Beings. We discuss what schools are getting right and wrong about supporting learners with challenging behavior, and an alternative lens for educators to view behavior in all learners. Thank you so much for listening. And now my interview with Dr. Ross Green. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Ross Green, who is the New York Times bestselling author of Lost at School and Raising human beings. He is the originator of the model of care described in those books now called Collaborative and Proactive Solutions. Dr. Green was on the faculty at Harvard Medical School for over 20 years and is now the founding director of the nonprofit Lives in the Balance, which provides a vast array of free web-based resources on the CPS model. Dr. Green, welcome to the Think Inclusive podcast. Thanks for inviting me to do this. I'd like to jump right in and ask, what are schools getting right about supporting students with behavioral challenges? And what are they getting wrong? There are a lot of very caring people in schools who care a lot about establishing relationships with kids and are working under very difficult circumstances. Unfortunately, a lot of schools, despite their emphasis on relationships, are still relying very heavily on consequences and still very focused on the behavior of their students. Now that might sound like sort of an interesting statement. What would you be focused on if not on the behavior? You'd be focused on the problems that are causing that behavior. So I think that a lot of schools are still way too focused on modifying behavior. And I think of concerning behavior as merely the means by which a kid is communicating that there are expectations they're having difficulty meeting. Still too much focus on behavior and modifying it, and not enough focus on and expertise in 
identifying and solving the problems that are causing those behaviors. So I think schools are getting a lot right. And I think that schools got a lot right during the pandemic when they were working under extraordinarily difficult circumstances. And I'm quite frankly not saying anything differently now than I was pre-pandemic. This is all about identifying the expectations students are having difficulty meeting, what we call unsolved problems, and solving those problems rather than relying so heavily on strategies that are merely aimed at modifying kids' behaviors. How did we get to this point anyways in education? Because it seems like the emphasis on using behaviorist ideas to solve these challenging problems or challenging behavior in students, it seems like a relatively newer phenomenon. I started teaching in 2004. And by the time I left, it seems like that's all we were talking about is how, you know, PBIS, how to think about students' behavior and the function of it, interventions. Well, B.F. Skinner was around a long time ago. Applied behavior analysis has been around for a very long time. There are many applied behavior analysts in schools, but I do think that, believe it or not, things took an interesting turn with Columbine. Hmm. Okay. Columbine prompted the rise of zero tolerance policies, allegedly to keep us safer in schools. So although B.F. Skinner and applied behavior analysis have been around for a very long time, I think that fears about school safety actually prompted us to create school environments that were less user-friendly for kids, less focused on social-emotional learning, less focused on relationships, and more focused just on coming down hard and having zero tolerance for inappropriate behaviors. You know, we have a lot of educators that listen. That's mostly our audience, is educators. And they are steeped in this behaviorist thinking. They're steeped in this framework. So what are educators supposed to do when they want to do what's best for kids, they hear you and they're like, that's, that's good. I want that. I want relationships. I, I want to believe that children do well if they can. But yet they also are trying to reconcile what they've been taught. And maybe they're even at a PBIS school and they're doing re rewards and they're, they have this framework. So do we actually need to separate ourselves from that framework, or is there any middle ground? Well, many schools are implementing collaborative and proactive solutions within their structures of PBIS. So clearly they do not have to be separated. PBIS flows from the applied behavior analytic tradition. So it's no accident that schools that are implementing PBIS, given the B word of PBIS, have a traditional definition of function, the function of a kid's behavior, and are primarily focused on teaching and reteaching appropriate, here we go again, behaviors. So while there are schools that are implementing CPS within the three structures of PBIS, when you get to the interventions that are often applied as part of PBIS, that's where life can get particularly interesting in the fact that PBIS is still primarily focused on the B word, behavior, 
And in collaborative and proactive solutions, we are focused on the problems that are causing those behaviors and solving them. So there are definitely differences in approach and lenses of those two ways of doing things. But that doesn't mean we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It means that many schools, as I've just said, are implementing CPS within the structures of PBIS. If that's all PBIS is, easy peasy. That's not all PBIS is. PBIS has certain lenses that go along with it that flow once again from the applied behavior analytic tradition and is primarily focused on behavior. In the CPS model, we view behavior as simply the signal. It's not something we focus on. So I think that the biggest issue is that it can be confusing for people in terms of what are we focused on and what interventions are we applying to help our most vulnerable students? Let's say a school administrator is listening to this conversation and they're like, well, what's, what is CPS anyways? Well, the CPS model draws upon 40 to 50 years of research telling us that kids who are responding poorly to problems and frustrations are lacking skills, not motivation. That's huge. Skills like flexibility, adaptability, frustration tolerance, problem solving, emotion regulation. The research tells us that that is so. There's actually no research telling us that kids who are responding poorly to problems and frustrations are unmotivated. Zero. That study does not exist. Therefore, in the CPS model, we are not applying motivational strategies to try to help these kids. We are helping adults and kids solve problems proactively and collaboratively, meaning together and outside the heat of the moment. And what we find, and I was trained as a behaviorist too, so changing lenses is something I know a little bit about because my own lens has changed, mm -hmm. right? That said, I actually think that the CPS model fits well under the social learning theory umbrella under which other behavioral approaches actually sit as well. So we're not necessarily talking about different universes here, but there's the sort of Reader's Digest version of the CPS model. We find that if people are focused on behavior, they are missing the forest for the trees. They're not focused on the problems that are causing those behaviors. You can reward and punish a kid till the cows come home for their behavior and still not solve a single of the problems that are causing those behaviors. And in the kids that I've worked with, thousands of them at this point, many of them in prison and inpatient psychiatry units and residential facilities, kids who are being suspended perpetually out of school, kids who are still being hit at school, kids who are being restrained and secluded at school. One thing's for certain in my mind, focusing primarily on their behavior rather than on problems that are causing those behaviors is a big part of how we've been failing these kids. I don't mean to put words in your mouth, Dr. Green, but if, you know, PBIS is referenced in IDEA. So, and the last time it was reauthorized was 2004. I mean, would you say, and I'm not saying you, you want CPS to be written into the law, but that would help <laughs> change, right? We are ripe for a realignment in education, specifically around special education and general education. And 
I know it's not working. You know it's not working. Our audience knows it's not working. You know, we need a unified system. In your view, does CPS fall within that it's not just for special education students, it's for all students, right? That would certainly be my view. And I am aware because I'm in contact with legislators and their aides that PBIS is often the go-to in legislation. But I think that there are many people who write legislation and ponder what would be the best ways to fix things who are aware of the fact that PBIS has had a very long run here. The results are before us. And if PBIS was all we needed, then we'd be in good shape right now. So I think that there are people who are beginning to question whether PBIS is all we need, whether those three tiers are as useful as people feel they are, and whether focusing on a kid's behavior is really the best way to help them create better relationships, create better communication. I think that there are a lot of people who are questioning that right now. In answer to your first part of your question, would I love to see CPS written into legislation? Heck yeah. <laughs> Let's say an, an administrator or district administrator is listening to this conversation and they're saying, okay, well, you know, Dr. Green said that CPS fits well within you know, like a PBIS structure, or let's say a three-tiered structure, or even a multi-tiered system of support, right? So can you conceptualize that for our listener? How would CPS fit within that structure? The bad news is I don't think about the structure. I don't think about the tiers at all. Okay. I think you're doing CPS at all three tiers. You're doing it for everybody. You're doing it at tier two. You're doing it at tier three. Also, tiers are not way stations. Same kit could look like they are at different tiers, even within the same hour of the day, hmm. right? So you're asking somebody who really doesn't have a lot of use for the tiers to talk about how you would implement CPS within the tiers, which I don't have a lot of use for, right? <laughs> what, what I always say is that I'm very well aware that there are schools that are implementing C CPS within the three tiers of PBIS or multi-systemic, multi-tiered systems of support, right? More power to them. It's not something I give any thought to whatsoever. My answer is you're doing CPS at all three tiers. And by the way, if you're doing CPS at all three tiers, well, then the tiers sort of start to lose their meaning. You know, the tiers were an attempt to organize the effort. The effort should be aimed at making sure every kid gets what they need. That is also the definition of equity. So interestingly enough, we should be asking ourselves the question, are the three tiers helping us ensure that every kid gets what they need? And if we were instead focused on making sure that every kid got what they need, are the three tiers helping us or are the three tiers getting in the way? Different people might have different answers to that. I don't really want people focused on the three tiers. This is not a religion. Religion for me, making sure everybody, every kid gets what they need. The definition of equity. Are the three tiers helping us with that or getting in the way? Those are the questions we should be asking ourselves. And so to be clear, you're not just talking about behavior. You're talking about just education in general, because you know, multi-tiered systems of support isn't just about behavior. 
it's academics and social skills and behavior, you know, and, and other things. So if our goal is equity, do we really need the tiers? You know, everybody has to answer that question for themselves. My answer is, and I know people who, who I respect greatly, who have found those three tiers to be very useful to help them organize the effort. Great. I'm not anti-tier, right? Here's, <laughs> here's a sort of a benign thing, sort of. But if people are thinking more about the tiers than they are about making sure every kid gets what they need, that's a problem. What tier is this is the wrong question. How do we make sure every kid gets what they need is the right question. For educators who have students who have some significant or complex support needs, extensive support needs. So students with autism, students with intellectual disabilities. I mean, historically, the students with that kind of profile don't even have access to general education classrooms. They're typically somewhere else. And academics aren't necessarily the focus for them. Behavior is the focus. Social skills are the focus. How do you see CPS, if at all, help with including students who have been historically marginalized or segregated? First of all, the diagnoses mean nothing to me. The special ed labels mean nothing to me. What tells me about a kid is the information we get from the instrument we use in this model called the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. As I always say, it gives us the information that's been missing. What are this kid's lagging skills? What expectations is the kid having difficulty reliably meeting? So quite frankly, I've worked with probably a thousand kids who were diagnosed with autism. They were all completely different. They all had completely different capacities to access general education. Some were special ed, some were not. Some were in a segregated setting. Many were accessing general education classrooms when they were able to. So the, the categories that we use for these kids, not just diagnoses, but also special ed categories, leave me cold. I don't think that they move the ball forward when it comes to our definition of equity, making sure that every kid gets what they need. But here's, in, in my, at my level of analysis, are we focused on solving the problems that are causing these kids to not be able to access general education settings? Some kids, it's not going to be in the cards for a while. In extremely rare circumstances, it may not be in the cards at all. Keywords, extremely rare. But if we are not solving the problems that are causing this kid to not be able to access general education, the kid will never be able to access general education because we're not doing what we need to do to, to improve the possibility of that happening. So... Now I'm freeing myself of the labels, freeing myself of the special education categories, trying to meet this kid where they're at and trying to make sure this kid gets what they need. For me, that means solving the problems that are making it difficult for the kid to access education, general education, be safe at school. Mm -hmm. Those are the problems that we are trying to solve in this model. The more problems we solve, the more collaborative we are, the more proactive we are in doing all of that, because unsolved problems are nowhere nearly as unpredictable 
as people think they are. The more we do all of that, the more optimistic I am that this individual kid is eventually going to be able to access the most they are able to access. And that's the goal. If you're suspending a lot of kindergartners in your school system, you are depriving kids of their education, probably because of their behavior. But remember, the behavior is being caused by unsolved problems. If we're doing this from the get-go and we don't look back and we keep doing it, we're no longer focused on the kids concerning behavior. We're no longer worried about three tiers. We're no longer worried about a special ed categorization, though it might be necessary. We are no longer thinking about primarily about the kid's psychiatric diagnosis. We're focused on solving problems with this kid. And the biggest hurdle, by the way, in some of the schools that I work with that are just beginning to use this model is that they are dealing with massive piles of unsolved problems because they're just getting started and no one's done it before. That's the biggest challenge of all. Coming in and getting this going from scratch in kids who've been struggling for a really long time, that's a big lift. We do it, but it's a big lift. I'd much rather start this the minute the kid walks in the building on day one. Let's figure out what's making it hard for this kid. Let's start solving those problems collaboratively and proactively. Then let's see what things look like. Let me see if I can reflect back what you've been saying, what I've been learning about CPS. So this model is uh, done at a school level at the very least. It could be done at a district level, but it's most likely at a school level. And sometimes, by the way, even at an individual classroom okay. level, okay. there's schools that I work with that are trying to get rid of restraint and seclusion. But it's not the whole building that's using restraint and seclusion. It's special ed classrooms that are using restraint and seclusion. If that's the goal, we're going to be focused on those classrooms. Now, it might bleed out to the rest of the building, but some schools were just focused on the individual classrooms in which their practices need to be adjusted. And so where it starts is an assessment. Is that correct? Correct. Well, okay. uh, actually, let me, let me say this. Mm, it starts with lenses. Okay. Lagging skills, not lagging motivation. Mm -hmm. Problems, not the behaviors that are being caused by those problems. Sure. Then we're ready for the assessment tool. Keep going. And then <laughs> I feel like I'm getting, I'm, be, I'm being tested now. Okay. And then. Well, it's always interesting for me to hear what people are hearing. Okay. <laughs> All right. So yeah. So lenses, then assessment. Then I would assume some sort of procedure or teaching is involved. There's uh, training involved in how to solve problems with kids and how to use the assessment tool. Okay. But it's not just the assessment tool is what I'm hearing that there are like intervals. So let's say we were going to redo this assessment every couple of weeks, 30 days, 60 oh, days. You do, the assessment. you do the assessment once. Okay. Then you prioritize the unsolved problems that you're going to be working on with the kid. Gotcha. Okay. A lot of these kids who've been struggling for a long time have 30, 40, 50 expectations. They're having difficulty meeting reliably. First of all, can you imagine being that kid? And I always say, 
Can you imagine that kid waking up in the morning on a school day, knowing that there are going to be 30, 40, 50 expectations or having difficulty meeting that day? As I always say, I'm not sure I'd show up. <laughs> Many don't. I'm not sure I'd get out of bed. Yeah. Many don't, right? We're going to have to prioritize something, by the way, that IEPs are not very good at doing. IEPs tell us everything that's the matter and everything we're going to be working on often all at once. Good luck. Have to prioritize. Have to actually take a close look at our expectations and ask ourselves, does this kid even have a snowball's chance of meeting a lot of these? Why are we putting expectations on kids and pushing hard on those expectations when we already know they can't meet them, and when we know that by pushing them, we are going to cause the concerning behaviors that cause us to restrain, seclude, suspend, expel, hit. Why are we doing that? So this is a, the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems is a huge piece of the picture because it forces us caregivers to really ask questions we frequently don't ask ourselves. Can the kid even meet the expectation? Mm. If not, why are we putting the expectation on that kid? Sure. Keep going. <laughs> okay. All right. So there's some sort of training. There's prioritization of what we're going to be working on. Correct. And then, so an educator or whoever is, is supporting the students, they have to do something, right? So what is the, what is the thing that they do? First, they figure out lagging skills and unsolved problems. Then right. they prioritize. Right. And then they take the unsolved problems that they've decided they're prioritizing right now. And the top priority is safety. So any unsolved problems that are causing safety issues are going to be a high priority. Now we start solving those problems collaboratively and proactively. Okay. So is there a structure to that? Solving a problem collaboratively involves three steps. I'm happy to go through them if you'd like me to, but if that's not our focal point, I'm happy not to no, as well. No, I'm, no, I'm interested. I think, I think people want to hear this. <laughs> I do. Solving process consists of three steps. The first step is called the empathy step. Second step is called the define adult concern step. Third step is called the invitation. The main ingredient of the empathy step is information gathering gathering information from a student about what's making it hard for them to meet a particular expectation. As I always say, the empathy step is where we learn that what we thought was getting in the kid's way is not what's getting in the kid's way. Yes, we do this with kids who are non-speaking. Mm. Yes, we do this with kids who haven't talked to a caregiver for eight years. We do this with reluctant participants. What we find is that once us caregivers stop trying to talk with kids about their concerning behaviors, the signal, and start talking with them about the problems that are causing those signals, they talk. Some of them, good luck getting them to shut up. And these are kids who haven't talked in forever. The second step is the define it all concern step. This is where the caregiver is entering their concern into consideration. Why do they think it's important for the expectation be met, that the expectation be met? I'm always saying to caregivers, if you don't know why it's important that the expectation be met, then I don't know why you have that expectation. Third step, the invitation. This is where kid and caregiver 
are collaborating on a solution that addresses the concerns of both parties. All of this is being done proactively because we've already identified the unsolved problems. We've already decided what our priorities are. We already know what we're working on. We already know what we're not working on. Now, believe it or not, the main response I get is that it's going to take a lot of time. We find that people are worried about time when we first start working with them. We find that they're not even talking about time three months in. This is more an issue of commitment. Is our school committed to carving out the time to solve problems with our students? If the answer is no, okay. You're going to keep spending an enormous amount of time on what happens because those problems are unsolved. In which case, the answer is eventually going to be yes. And if the answer is yes, how do we make slight modifications to our structures, our schedules, how we're using our time to make sure that we have time to solve problems with kids? And that is why this model has a pretty stellar track record for dramatically reducing discipline referrals and all of the punitive exclusionary things that happen after discipline referrals, there aren't really discipline referrals because we are not sending behaviors to principal, assistant principal to deal with. We are solving problems in the environments in which they are occurring with the people with whom they are occurring with. And that is a much better system than sending kids to somebody else for justice to be administered. So that's the picture. Now, here's the interesting thing. We've done that in a lot of schools. The big issue is one of scaling. Because we are very confident about what this looks like and what it accomplishes in the schools that we've worked with, and that's in the hundreds at this point, maybe thousands, I'm not sure. We don't keep count. How do we scale this so that it finds its way into policy, finds its way into practices? How do we make this as easy as possible for schools to adapt? Now you know what I spend all of my waking hours doing. Uh, this seems flexible enough to be implemented anywhere. This is, I, we have implemented this everywhere kids hang out. Families, schools, general and special ed, inpatient psychiatry units, residential facilities, prisons, group homes, adult facilities. We still got to figure out the individual's lagging skills and unsolved problems. Got to get rid of a lot of the debris that we tend to be focused on that just distracts us. We've got to get people good at solving problems collaboratively and proactively. I hate to make it sound so simple, but that's kind of what it comes down to. Is there anything that you wanted to say that I didn't, I didn't bring up? We have covered an enormous amount of territory. <laughs> we have. I cannot, you're, you're an excellent facilitator and I cannot think of anything offhand that we haven't talked you're about. You're making my heart feel so happy, Dr. Green. <laughs> I hope you're not just saying that. I don't think you are. I don't think you are. No, I, believe me, I've had not wonderful facilitators and it's a lot easier for me to talk about what we're trying to do here when I've got a good facilitator. So I'm not just saying it. I appreciate it. Okay. Well, to, to close this out here, let's say you were advising Dr. Cardona on education policy. What would be your advice? to them. Let's pull together educators, 
unions, administrators, law enforcement, to the degree that they are present in schools, mm -hmm. mental health staff. Let's have a really honest conversation about how we want to make sure that every kid gets what they need, how we achieve equity, what structures and systems and lenses are getting in our way, and how do we embark on a long-term plan for fixing all of that? And uh, Mr. Secretary, I'm delighted to participate in that conversation. Dr. Green, it has been a pleasure to speak with you on the Think Inclusive podcast. We appreciate your time and knowledge and wisdom. Thank you very much for inviting me to do this. Think Inclusive is written, edited, and sound designed by Tim Viegas and is a production of MCIE. Original music by Miles Kredich. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, here are some ways for you to help us grow the podcast. Share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. And if you haven't already, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Special thanks to our patrons, Melissa H., Veronica E., Sonia A., Pamela P., Mark C., Kathy B., Kathleen T., Jarrett T., Gabby M., and Aaron P. for their support of Think Inclusive. Another way you can help support Think Inclusive is to become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash thinkinclusivepodcast and become a patron today at the three five and ten dollar per month levels for more information about inclusive education or to learn how mcie can partner with you and your school or district visit mcie.org we will be back in a couple of weeks thanks for your time and attention and remember inclusion always works